Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Dear listeners, welcome back to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Anna Zelnina, the host of the channel, uh, and this interview is recorded in partnership with the Community and Urban Sociology section uh, of the American Sociological Association and its academic journal, City and Community. Joining me today is Paul Watt, and we will be talking about his new book, Estate Regeneration and Its Discontents, Public Housing, Place and Inequality in London. This book was published by Policy Press in 2021. Paul, welcome to the show. Welcome. Well, let's start this interview with a short introduction. Could you tell us about yourself uh, a little bit? Yeah, sure. Yeah, thanks very much for uh, inviting me, Anna. I really appreciate this. Um, yeah, I'm um, Professor of Urban Studies in the Department of Geography at Birkbeck University of of London. I've been there about 15 years um, and my academic background is that I began in sociology and probably I still think of myself as mainly a sociologist, as mainly an urban sociologist, Um, but uh, I've also branched out into geography and into social policy in particular and I teach in the Department of, of, um, of Geography. So I'm a bit a bit eclectic, but like I think a lot of urbanists, um, you know, a bit of a uh, you know eclectic mix, really, of different dis- disciplinary backgrounds and interests, really. Right. It's an interdisciplinary field, so I guess uh, many people can relate. Um, so let's talk about the book. How did you come up with the idea for the book and what what is it based on? Yeah, I mean, it goes back to my, my PhD. I finished my PhD back in 2001, and my PhD was looking at uh, ca- about uh, council housing, that's public housing or local authority housing in the London Borough of Camden in London. And I was very interested in relation about class relationships and about issues of neighbourhood and place and community. And that was that was sort of like, you know, that was really the, the grounding of my interest in many ways of council housing in London. And then during the course of my PhD, it became obvious that there were various kind of regeneration schemes were being put in place. And um, that really sparked my interest in relationship to thinking about what what, what is a state regeneration? What does it do? Um, So in 2007-8, I did uh, some initial work looking at estate regeneration in two London boroughs. That was the uh, East London Borough of Tower Hamlets. I looked at the Ocean Estate, and then I also looked at the Clapham Park Estate in the South London Borough of Lambeth. So that was really where I kind of got into the whole topic of estate regeneration. Um, Then in 2011-12, I got interested in issues around uh, the, the impact of the Olympics in terms of regeneration on East London. And um, so I then began to do work on the Carpenters Estate, which is in the London Borough of Newham, which is in Stratford in the London Borough of Newham. So that's kind of like an area which, if you like, was the epicentre of the 2012 Games. And um, this was an estate which had been experiencing regeneration since around about 2005. And by the time that I went there in 2011-12, regeneration had been going on for about seven years. But interestingly, in terms of sort of any kind of physical changes, nothing had actually happened. There was absolutely no physical evidence that any regeneration had taken place. And no, no, nothing had been abolished. No new homes had been built. However, roughly half of the population had been moved out of the estate in the expectation that demolition would occur. So... These were the kind of, you know, these were kind of like the building blocks, if you like, for my my book. So those kind of like early initial schemes. 
And then I began a sort of a more intensive uh, period of work um, looking at estate regeneration. And I focused on 14 different estates across seven London boroughs. And um, yeah, so the research dates back as far as 2007. And then I completed the research for the book in 2019. Um, so, you know, it's over a decade's worth of research. I wasn't working just on this. I did work on other things. And, during, you know, did, I actually got the book contract in 2015. And, um, you know, I was very slow. <laughs> I was supposed to finish the book in 2017. Um, but I actually produced another, I edited another two other books in the meantime. So, you know, the whole thing's been a bit delayed. Um, but um, so since completing the book, though, I've actually gone back to uh, some, of the, some of the estates that I looked at in the book. Um, so I'm quite an obsessive in many kind of ways, an obsessive researcher. I'm very, I'm always thinking there's new things to find out, new things to um, understand about estate regeneration. So I've gone back to, yeah, I've gone back to the Carpenter Estate, for example, Carpenter Park Estate, and uh, Woodbury Downs. So um, yeah, so it's a kind of long-running project, and I was approached by um, Policy Press. Um, the editor, one of the editors there, one called Emily Watt, who's actually no relation. This was at a conference in 2013. She knew I'd been working on on council housing. Uh, and Policy Press were very interested in issues around housing, particularly around public housing, social housing. So she approached me with the possibility of thinking about a book. And I was, you know, so I was thinking, yeah, I, I could, um, you know, I, I was applying for various research grants. So I thought that I could, um, you know, d- develop a book. In the end, unfortunately, I didn't get any research grants to do the book. It was, um, I applied for three different grants. I didn't get any of those. Um, anyway, so the book was primarily financed through internal funding from Birkbeck. So I'm very, very grateful to Birkbeck for funding this. Um, yeah, so it was, it was, it was very much a long-term project. And so it's not a, it's not a, it's not a neat um, study in many kind of ways. It's, a, it's I describe it, it's, a, it's a, an ethnographic journey through the estate, London's estate regeneration landscape. Um so it, yeah, it was it was a long term project. I was very keen to because I, I was very dissatisfied in various ways with both with the way that the um, the official policy uh, narrative, uh, the way that that frames regeneration, because that didn't seem to me to be um, you know accurate in terms of what was actually happening. Um, and I was also sort of dissatisfied with certain academic approaches to thinking about estates uh, and thinking about regeneration. So it was it was sort of born out of desire to you know to to make a sort of a policy, partly to make a policy contribution, uh, but also to make uh, you know a distinctive uh, you know academic contribution to understanding estates, social housing estates, uh, but also to understanding then this this very long term process. Of state regeneration. So, what is London's council housing? What kind of housing is it? Who lives there? And what's the problem? Okay, so um, the, his- the brief. I'll, I'll give you a very brief history. So, London council housing, which is uh, provided by the local authority, provided by the, what's the council. London has got currently it's got thirty three um, local uh, local authority boroughs. And each borough then has got a certain amount of council housing. It varies, you know, sort of actually got zero council housing now for complicated reasons. But council housing, public housing began then in London back in 1900, whereby the first estate was built, which was the boundary estate in present day Tower Hamlets. Um, council housing then developed, you know, as a, as, a, as a very much as a sort of a state response to the appalling housing conditions that Londoners were facing during the 19th century and early 20th century. And um, you know, conditions in London housing, many, many, many parts of the city were atrocious in terms of um, infestation, in terms of overcrowding. So there was, they began, to, you know, in, in the late 19th century and getting into 20th century, there began to be, you know, a, a political sense that really something had to be done over and above what was being provided. You probably know that um, what happened in the late 19th century was that a series of philanthropists, for example, Guinness and Peabody, they provided what's called housing association properties. And these were, it's, it's called a sort of 5% philanthropy. So they would provide social housing at rent levels below the private market levels. And that was very important. It's very significant, but nevertheless, it didn't really make a huge dent in terms of the housing provision, uh, meeting the housing needs of working class Londoners. So that's why then, really, the sort of the state steps in, 
And um, what happens then is that in the period immediately before the First World War, there's some initial council housing built. And then there's a much more significant increase in council housing during the interwar period. And that then is increased further in the period after the Second World War from 1945 up until 1980. So council housing then is currently, it's, it's well, at its peak um, in 1981, council housing housed getting on for 770,000 households. So getting you know, one in three London households were actually council tenants, basically. Council housing then is, is it's social housing and the rents then are at uh, below market level rents. And in London currently, they're, they're extremely, um, by, by, by private rental standards, they're extremely affordable. They're, they're, they're relatively low. On average, they're probably you know, getting around for about a third or maybe even a quarter of private rents. Um, also, one of the important things about council housing is that the it's, it's, it's a very secure tenure. People have got secure, long-term council tenants then have got security of tenure. So it's not like the private rental system. The private rental system in London, you probably know, is uh, highly insecure and the rents are extremely expensive. And so people get moved on, they get evicted, they get displaced through processes of rent increases, gentrification, etc., etc. Whereas council housing, estate-provided housing, which, as I said, then is, is affordable rents, are genuinely affordable rents, and also secure. So what it's what it's what it does, what it what it what it meant. And this is really one of the points I want to try and make in the book is that um, council housing was a really really important part of the way that working you know working class Londoners reproduced themselves as a class. It provided a secure housing base um, uh, and level of security. Um, with which working class Londoners then could function in a city, um, you know, a city which, which, you know, some of them, you know, it's, it's a city which has been notorious historically for having, you know, precarious labour conditions in all kinds of ways. Um, but nevertheless, council housing then provided this this this, uh, this uh, housing level, you know, high, high level housing security. Um, it's not to say it's not without its problems. And again, one of the points I make in the book is the way that what's then what particularly happened, and particularly in the period um, from the 1980s onwards, is that there was significant disinvestment in the stock. So the stock wasn't properly maintained. Repairs weren't done. There's a rough, you know, rough figure that's that's typically given is that round about by the time that um, the Conservatives left uh, office in 1997, they came in in 1979 under Margaret Thatcher. By the time that they left, 18 years later, there was something like like 19 billion pounds worth of maintenance backlog in terms of housing across England. So it was very much disinvested in stock. And that's particularly the case in many inner London areas. For example, areas like Hackney, Lambeth, Tower Hamlets. The stock is really, really disinvested in. Um, so um, so although fund, you know, the fundamentals of council housing have been very, very important in relationship to, as I said, working class social reproduction, uh, but nevertheless, uh, the state disinvestment uh, policies from 1980s to 1990s, it really meant that uh, you know many Londoners were living in poor condition. Currently, you know the stock has shrunk. So if you again, if you go, if so, so 2011, the last uh, census, uh, the previous census in 2011, so roughly about 400,000 Londoners were in council housing. So it pretty much halved. So um, you know it's definitely shrunk. You've also got the housing association sector, which is that's increased in size. That's the um, the voluntary sector, if you like. That still that also provides social housing. But nevertheless, what's happened over the last forty years, and this is you know, I talk about this in terms of um, neoliberalism, is that we've seen a long term four, four decades long contraction uh, in council housing provision, uh, generally uh, council housing provision, but also in social housing provision more generally. And that's had a real impact in relationship then to the ways then that um, you know Londoners, working class Londoners, are simply struggling in a in a highly, uh, very very uh, insecure, toxic, in many ways, private rental sector. So, what about estate regeneration? What does it mean? What does it involve? And why is that a problem? Okay, well, estate regeneration—it's—it's—it's it's, it's the idea that social housing estates that they have got then a concentration, special concentration of certain urban problems. So it could be then high levels of unemployment. It could be uh, high levels of deprivation, high levels of poverty. In some cases, high levels of crime and antisocial behavior or fear of crime. 
So the argument is then, and also in, in some cases, you know, physical, uh, the physical dilapidation of, of buildings. Um, so the argument is then that estate regeneration is a process then of reinvestment into these estates to improve these social problems. So you could then uh, reinvest in terms of the physical fabrics, so you, know, you could have physical regeneration, so you could have refurbishment of the existing buildings, so you could have new windows, new doors, you could have new lifts, you could have new walkways, you could have better security systems, so you could have, that's physical regeneration. But you could also have then, uh, you know, a regeneration in terms of uh, employment. So you could have training programs for people on the estate. Uh, you could have improved social regeneration. So you might then, for example, have uh, have health health club facilities. You might have youth club facilities, what have you. Uh, yeah. So those are the kind of like the main. That's the main. That's the broad kind of our aim of regeneration. Is that you know it's like urban regeneration generally. It's trying to solve the special concentration of certain social, certain social economic, physical problems, by a targeted reinvestment into this into this neighbourhood into this area. The, the the issues. I mean, in many ways, you know, that sounds perfectly fine and perfectly plausible. You know, you would say, well, what's what's wrong with that? Reinvestment and revitalization, renewal strategies are entirely that's that's a good thing. I think the issue comes in relationship to what kind of physical regeneration are you talking about? Because it can take different forms. So, for example, at one end of the spectrum, and this is the this is the regeneration that I primarily focus on in the book. You have comprehensive redevelopment in other words then that the whole estate is demolished and it's rebuilt as a, as a what's called a mixed tenure neighborhood so that's one end of the spectrum total total demolition and rebuilding at the other end of the physical regeneration spectrum you have refurbishment in which there's no demolition at all of any existing physical uh, any existing uh, homes so that could then as i said that could be then in terms of you know improved then uh, windows or, or, or landings or lifts or whatever it is um and then in between those two extreme points, you can have then partial demolition and rebuilding. So part of the estate then is demolished and rebuilt. But you can also have something called infilling. And infilling then is whereby you might have, say, um, you know, spare garages or some sort of space on the estate which isn't terribly well used. And that then can be used to uh, build new, new homes on the estate. So you can have this quite a wide spectrum of what, what physical interventions in relationship to what regeneration is, and what I prime, what as I said, what I'm talking about in the book is mainly about the the most extreme kind, comprehensive redevelopment, whereby the entire estate or large parts of the estate are demolished and rebuilt, and that's what I'm focused on. And the issues there, I mean, I, you know, this is this is uh, you know what the, what the book's about, really. But um, there are all kinds of discontents that emerge out of this process, and yeah, so issues. I talk then around issues about the way that the consultation process is often. It's an obfuscatory process. It's confused and confusing as far as residents are concerned. In some cases, you could argue it's made deliberately confusing for them. Once the process, once the uh, you know process of demolition gets underway, is that what kicks in then is what I call a process of degeneration, and what happens there is. So, in other words, what I'm what I'm, what I'm trying to argue is that rather than regeneration being this. Uh, you know, inevitably, uh, you know, reinvestment, progressive, renewal, revitalization. That's not really what happens. That's not really the way that residents experience the regeneration process. They actually experience it in terms of what I call degeneration. In other words, then, there's actually a disinvestment into the estate, confusingly enough, but also that many of the things which residents didn't like about their estate to begin with actually actually worsen. So, for example, in relationship to sociability on the estates, what happens is then that people are moved out. So that means then that there's a loss of the social fabric for the only remaining residents. 
also in terms of what I mean by physical degeneration is that what tends to happen is that the, uh, the landlords, the, either the councils or the housing associations, they don't invest as much into the estates. So the, the physical fabric of the estates worsens even more than it did before. So it becomes more, residents said, it becomes more difficult for them to get to the council, the landlords to respond, for example, to um, repairs. Um, and also it's in terms of, and then once the de- once the demolition gets underway, you then have this, you know, process whereby people are living next to a building site. So, you know, the, the people are remaining there, so they suffer from the noise and the dust, and it affects their physical and also their mental health. So it's quite a, so this is what I mean. And then I talk about psychosocial degeneration then. The way then that this process has got all kinds of negative psychological impacts on people. As I said, the, 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 the noise and the, you know, the, the, the strains and stresses of living next to a building site. But also there's something that I call displacement anxiety. And what that means then is the way, displacement is when people are physically moved, um, um, forcibly moved away from an area from their homes. But displacement anxiety is really the process whereby once people are told that they're going to be moving out, they're then confused and anxious about where are they going to be moved to? What is the housing going to cost? When will they be moved? So residents enter this quite um, disturbing, in many ways, psychological uh, uh, scenario, in which they're, they're constantly worried about what's going to happen to them. And one of the key things that I try and emphasise in the book is that this process of estate regeneration involving demolition and rebuilding it's a very long-term process it's not something that just takes five years so if you look at so i looked at the estates that i studied so for example i talk about woodbury down in the london borough of, east london borough of hackney the regeneration there actually began in 1999 and it's an eight-phase regeneration scheme involving the total demolition of all the estate and rebuilding. Now, last uh, in the summer, I actually attended an event, which was a consultation event, for phase four of the regeneration. In other words, they're literally only halfway through. The whole scheme is not going to be completed until 2035. That's half people's lifetimes. So one of the key points that I try and emphasise throughout the book is the issue of temporality, is that this is a highly, extremely long-term process. And this process of degeneration then goes on for years and years and years. And it, it simply wears people out. It's, it's they, they get sick to they get sick to death of attending meetings about regeneration they're still expected to engage as part of the process and um, you know they're expected to attend these meetings year in year out and um, you know I mean it, it's you know apart from you know council officials who are paid to attend these meetings and uh, you know itinerant academics like myself who, who are actually interested in going along to these meetings and find out what's going on. Um, it's not the kind of thing that no, any normal person would want to go to year in, year out. It, it, it's actually, it's, it's, it's rather than enhancing and improving their lives, it's actually, you know, eroding their capacity to live a normal functioning life because this thing takes so long and it's you know it's it's a constant it's it's an ongoing process. And one of the important things about the estate regeneration, particularly about schemes which involve demolition and rebuilding, is the way that the the schemes change over time. So uh, this is a frequent complaint from residents: is that when the regeneration was pitched to them by the local government officials, by the council officials, by politicians, or by the housing association landlords, is that they were made various promises about how the scheme would unfold, but also about what kinds of housing that they would um, eventually get at the end of it. A frequent complaint, uh, a lament even from residents, was that these promises were never realised. 
years down the track. And what's very interesting is the way that residents would say, you know, back, you know, this, I remember this was a, was a meeting I attended at One North London scheme in 2014. And uh, the scheme had begun in 2002. And residents at this particular scheme were saying, well, to, to the officials there at the meeting that I attended, this wasn't, this wasn't what we were promised. Because, you know, ex-politicians said to us, this is what's going to happen. But of course, that particular politician was no longer there. So what you have is then a situation in which that the officials and the politicians who would make these promises at the beginning of the scheme, five years or 10 years down the track, they've moved on to better things. Whereas the residents are still having to live with the consequences and the shifts in planning around, uh, you know, which in relationship to the regeneration scheme. So, sorry, just get to, to answer the question. So what, so what happens is then that this process of degeneration, physical degeneration, the social degeneration, and also because because new, uh, new, um, people, familiar neighbours move out, and then the homes then fill, uh, that get occupied by temporary tenants, unfamiliar people. In some cases, there's an increase in squatting. So you get this in, in sociological terms, you get an increase in social anime. So people literally, they don't know, they, they feel uncomfortable around the place that they've lived in in many cases for decades, for decades, in some cases, all, even all their lives. You have this psychosocial degeneration, this deterioration then in people's sense of well-being. Interestingly, you also have uh, what I call symbolic degeneration, because we know that social housing estates are stigmatised. But what then happens to almost like add insult to injury is that the, the the half empty or the three quarters empty estates, these become the perfect uh, film locations for television shows and TV films, typically about crime, gangsters, uh, you know, dystopian fantasies in many kind of ways and future fantasies. So what happens then is that the film crews arrive. So literally residents were telling me during interviews, they were saying, look, now our our, court, our you know half empty estate, we've got the film crews there. They're filming then these 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 tales then of how terrible life is on these estates. Um, so it's just sort of adding insult to injury. So the point. So that, that this is the point I'm you know really trying to emphasise in the book is the way that this is a long term process, and it has these you know quite deep and profound degenerative effects and those are generally they're not articulated by the official regeneration narrative from politicians and from officials well um, this kind of leads to my next question i wanted you to talk a little bit more about this those concepts of uh, belonging, community, neighborhood. How do you work with these uh, with these concepts, and how how do they uh, contribute to your project, to your analysis? Because this it's a major theme in the book. Yeah. So, you know, probably in in I'm a, you know my background, as I said, is in sociology, and probably if I had to say what, what, what am I, I'm probably a spatial sociologist. I'm interested in the spatiality of social relations. So, you know, I do cross over into geography. Um, issues of place belonging is that, you know, you know, the message from, you know, some of the, some of the, certainly some of the early globalization work is that place is becoming redundant, is that we're living in sort of placeless worlds, people are fluid, they're mobile. So their sense of identity with a particular place, a neighborhood or, or, or an area, a region or a city is diminishing. But the empirical research seems to suggest that, um, you know, that that's highly variable, and particularly for certain groups in cities, um, that they develop, they do, they still have quite strong ties to areas, to neighbourhoods, to places that they've grown up in, places they've lived in. It tends to be probably particularly higher amongst lower income groups, uh, probably particularly, you know, more, more deprived groups, probably stronger. Um, it also depends around issues of, uh, you know, so. For example, families, families are probably more likely to be tight, you know, to have this sort of sense of identity. So what I'm interested, what I was interested in the book really is trying to understand not only about the, what the impact of regeneration is, 
but also about what what do people think about living at the estates before regeneration? So what is their sense of attachment to their home? What is the sense of attachment that they might have to the neighbourhood? And what is their sense of it, which is, you know, I, I tend to use that as coterminous with it, with it, with the estate. Um, but also, what is people's sense of attachment to what I call the intermediate scale of the blocks? If you think about most uh, social housing estates, they're configured by uh, blocks of apartment blocks, blocks of flats. So it's sort of an intermediate level, spatial scale, basically. So what I'm interested then is, is thinking about what are people, what, what is people's sense of attachment? Do they have a sense of belonging to their home? Do they value their home? Do they value, do they have a sense of attachment to their neighbourhood? Um, and, you know, also in relationship, as I said, then to the intermediate scale of the block. So it's expressed in terms of, you know, I'm in very interested in issues around neighbouring, issues of, you know, to what extent then do people have a sense of neighbourliness in their area? And even to what extent, I mean, so it's, it's, it's one of the most, uh, you know, the, the abused and what most used and abused uh, concepts is the concept of community. And, and what was really interesting to me was that, you know, I mean, I, I'm very well aware of all the kind of the problems with the concept of community. It's, it's you know, it's a classic uh, problem, you know, discussion problem in, in urban sociology. Um, but nevertheless, even in many, many of the states that I looked at, um, you know, people did have a sense of community. They expressed it as having a sense of community, that they had a sense of that they knew their neighbours and that they developed a sort of sense of trust with their neighbours. And much of that was what I call traditional place belonging. In other words, that this was something which emerged over years and years and years of living in the same space, of living in the same home and having a, 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 the same group of neighbours year in, year out. And that, I, I, this is the way that I'd sort of frame that is I took this from Lisa McKenzie, um, who, who introduces this concept of what she calls local social capital. Social capital generally in Bourdieu's terms then is the idea that, you know, people connected up with social networks and then if you are then connected up to the right people, that can then advance you in certain kinds of, uh, you know, ways really. But local social capital is different than that. It's really the way in which the people build relations of trust, familiarity, connections within a local area within a local neighborhood but it's not necessarily portable you're not you can't port those kind of like those connections outside of the neighborhood they're very much concerned with interrelationships within the neighborhood and what was very very clear to me and this was particularly i'd say particularly strong amongst many of the female residents that i spoke to particularly amongst you know many social housing estates in london you tend to have quite high proportions of uh, single parent families which are headed by by women and that was one of the important things was that many of the women including uh, some of the mothers they had quite strong senses of trust with their neighbors they built up this local social capital they knew which neighbors that they could trust so if they were late uh, if they were late um coming home one day from, from from work or whatever they knew that their children if they're coming home from school could stay with a neighbor because they knew their neighbors they knew their neighbors because you know so there, there was there was a certain amount of conviviality I don't want to romanticise it because I'm not saying that there was there was never any problems. That would be not the case, uh, you know. Like you know, like any uh, like any family, there were, there were, there were, you know, there's, you could have tensions as well. Um, but nevertheless, this was something that um, people valued, and that's yeah, that traditional place belonging, and that differs from what um, Mike Savage has called uh, elected belonging. An elected belonging then is the way then the middle classes will move into a new neighbourhood and they will uh, elect to belong to that area on the basis of, uh, often on the basis of sort of aesthetic criteria, on the basis of sort of moral criteria that they enjoy. That that then is a place that they enjoy living in because it's a place for people like them. So they adopt the area 
Um, I, I, you know, I, I live in the borough of Islington in London, and you know, I'm not I'm not a local to Islington. I've only lived here for six years, and I'm very much a, a classic middle class professional elective belonger. I've moved into the area. I kind of identify with the area. Uh, you know, because it's it, it it's got certain things that you know I appreciate, um, and that's different from the kind of the traditional place belonging of many of the people I was talking about on estates, primarily working class, whose sense of place belonging is based on longevity. So it's the fact that they've lived in these uh, homes and these estates for years. So some of the people I interviewed. People have lived on their estates their entire lives. I remember there's one, one woman I interviewed up and again, we'll put Woodbury down. She was 63 and she said, this is the only place that I've lived in. She grew up on the estate in her parents' flat. The parents then passed away. She then got a flat on the estate and she didn't even want to move anywhere else in Hackney. This was, she felt very, very comfortable in this particular uh, neighbourhood. And, and so that's what I mean by traditional place belonging. Uh, I think it makes sense to discuss another big concept in your book, which is class and uh, this kind of class optic that you used to analyze also the uh, social relations before regeneration and during regeneration and different responses of people to those processes based on their kind of class attributes. So could you talk a little bit more about that, how the class dimension plays into your project? (laughs) You know, British sociology of a certain age, we're, we're obsessed with class. There's, 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 you know, there's, there's no doubt about it. Um, and it's undoubtedly the case that, you know, class has probably, up, up until probably relatively recently anyway, class has been probably the main inequality that British sociologists tended to focus on. Um, and it, it's, it's very, very important in relationship to housing and to cities. Um, because of the way that public housing, council housing, has been very much dominated by the working class. So it's it's you know it's it's it. So if you take if, if you take different areas of the welfare state, for example, so if you look at the, the national health service, it's a universalistic service. So the middle classes will use the NHS as well as the working class, but council housing is not like that. It, it, it's, it's primarily been occupied by working class people. I grew up, my, myself, I grew up on a council estate. I'm from a working class background. Uh, and the estate, I grew up in the north of England. And it was a classic working class council estate. There were, there were a few kind of like professionals, but it was very mainly working class people. And f- so demographically, but also symbolically, Council housing has been one of those things which has been very much associated with the working class. So part of the book is concerned with trying to understand the class relations that are concerned with this particular estate regeneration process, both why it happens and also then what the consequences are. Um, And putting, you know, it's important to say that there has been some change in relationship to class, the class composition of council housing, particularly in London over the last 30 years. And this, this emerges out of the right to buy, which is the famous policy there, which was introduced by Mrs. Thatcher in the 1980 Housing Act, whereby tenants could buy their homes at a discount. So what's, what that's done is, excuse me, is that those homes have then been sold and resold, in some cases onto the private market. So what it's meant is then in certain parts, certain estates in London is that people then who are in professional managerial jobs have moved, have bought their homes from the X right to for the for the for the X right to buy owner who will have then sold up and moved off. And then their homes then are sold to uh, new incoming professionals and managers. Pretty crudely gentrifies in the London context basically people then who weren't from who did wouldn't at one point they wouldn't have um, been able to access home and estate because they would be not in housing need um, uh, and they wouldn't they just wouldn't get home so now you have then so to some extent in the last 20-30 years you've had a shift in, uh, in in the class composition of council housing so there are more middle class people living on estates but they're, they're in a minority 
And what I do in the book, and I, I interview those people as part of the, the process. And think I, what I do is I use a sort of Bourdieuian lens to try and understand this. And my argument is that the, the if, you, if you think of the, the estate as a field, as in a Bourdieuian field, so the argument then is that this is a field which is dominated by the working class. So in other words, then, any of the professionals and managers who come to uh, buy into an estate, they have to insert themselves into this already pre-existing Bourdieuian working class space field of the estate. So they can't, the middle class then can't dominate it, partly because they're numerically not strong enough, but also because this is a pre-existing estate, which has already got a certain mode of being, if you like. Now, what, what then happens is, is that the process of regeneration, the demolition of the estate and its rebuilding, is that that is a, is a total transformation of the class composition of the neighbourhood. Because what happens is that there's a shrinkage in the amount of social housing provided, in some cases a very radical shrinkage, and there's a large increase in the amount of new private apartments that are built. And in the London context, the only people who can afford to buy or privately rent those new market apartments are middle-class professionals and managers, America's upper middle-class professionals and managers. So what estate regeneration does is it produces, it, it's de facto state-led gentrification. In other words, it's a policy then which through the demolition and erasure of the previous public housing and the creation of these mixed tenure neighborhoods, it means that the work it means that there's a radical shift in the socio-spatial position of the respective classes. So in the new regenerated uh, developments so if you, let's give an example so uh, if you one of the clearest examples of this is is the haygate estate in, in, the, in the south london borough of southwark this was an estate roughly about 1100 um, council homes it's now been it's had a long-running regeneration scheme it's now been demolished and 3000 homes have been built in its place it's been rebranded as Elephant Park, and there are over 2,000 market homes for sale. So they're in the dominant, they're, they're numerically dominant, and only 100 social homes have been reprovided. In fact, I don't even think it's that. So the point is then that any returning social tenants, you're primarily going to be working class they are now in an entirely different Bourdieuian field of the neighbourhood, a field where nature is absolutely dominated um, socially and demographically by middle-class um, residents, basically. So that's... An, uh, but what's interesting is that... Just go back to the, 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 the role that... Um, as I said, people buying who've bought into estates as through the right to X right to buy sales, they themselves were actually because one of the things that I talk about is the way then there was often resistance to this demolition of estates. But the homes of the new of the of those people who bought into the estates, the middle putting it crudely, the middle class gentrifiers, professionals, managers, their homes were threatened by this process, as well as that of their working class tenant neighbours. So the process of resistance was an interesting um, cross-class alliance in many ways between the, um, the working class council tenants, social tenants, and the uh, middle class um, professionals and managers. I call them, many of them were kind of quite marginal gentrifiers in the sense that they were, you know, they weren't necessarily on very high incomes. They were in sort of, you know, uh, 
yeah, not not not. They weren't they weren't people generally. They weren't people employed in say the finance industries. Uh, you know, there were people more employed in the arts and culture and and and, and what have you, sort of, and and uh, um, um, social services, what have you. Um, so so you know, not not high end gentrifiers. So you want so, but but their homes then are threatened by this estate regeneration process and by the kind of like this bigger behemoth, if you like. Of state-led gentrification because the whole place is radically transformed so in other words then at the end of the day you have a, you have this very different uh, Borgesian neighborhood field really an entirely new, new neighborhood with entirely different sets of social relations uh, I hope we have time to get back to the resistance question a bit later but I, I would like us to stay a bit longer on this displacement uh, concept and how you work with it because you mentioned you mentioned it in your book that this is not like a simple before and after event that this is a more complex process and i wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that and how that relates to the gentrification literature and how your approach is different from uh from from this particular literature yeah i mean displacement is complicated concept in many ways i suppose there are sort of two main dimensions to it um one is that it's simply it's, it's simply about physical relocation so it's about then people being moved moved from forcibly moved from one home neighborhood to another so that's part of it um and that's yeah that, that's you know that's that's generally the way that it's it's thought about so that's very very obviously very very important but you also have what we can call displacement in situ whereby then people feel a sense of displacement even though they might be remain in the original place it's what marcuse calls uh, displaced Peter marcuse calls displacement pressure um yeah so one of the things that I was very concerned about is, to, and, and again, I think this is this is part of the the overall rationale for the book generally, is to think very strongly about the temporal nature of how this how this process of displacement takes place. And one of the things that I, you know, became pretty obvious to me when I was talking to uh, certain certain residents was that, as I said, I think earlier on, that they were really concerned about what the implications of demolition were for them in terms of being moved away. And the process, as I said, was was very long-winded. It was very confusing. And so they were, were weighed down by all kinds of questions about, as I said, where am I going to be living what kind of home am I going to be moved to? When am I going to be moved? And then I, I've sort of conceptualized this in terms of what I call displacement anxiety. It's this sense of dread based around the sense of not having clear answers as to where you're going to be moved to. And this sense of displacement anxiety is particularly, I think, strong amongst um some of the owner occupiers that I faced because they were more likely to be moved away than those than tenants. It's a bit complicated because some of the it's also linked up to the sort of the the rights that different tenure groups have got. Generally, social tenants have got more rights than owner occupiers. That they, they social tenants are more likely to be they 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 can be offered a right what's called a right to return to the new built homes but also even if they don't get those if they, even if they don't come back and often they don't um, because there aren't enough social homes built but even if they don't come back they can't be they, they have to be offered an equivalent social tenancy um somewhere in the in uh, in, the, in the area but owner occupiers were particularly worried because they just get financial compensation and financial compensation is not enough for them to be able to buy a new home in the area because the house prices have gone up. That's one of the points about state regeneration, as state identification. Um, so they were particularly anxious. Also, interestingly, I interviewed quite a lot of people who were temporary tenants, and temporary tenants had been moved onto the estate during the process of displacement as the home, sorry, during the process of regeneration as the homes then become emptied out. So what happens is that the councils will fill up the empty properties with temporary tenants who are 
typically homeless, from their homeless list. But they could be living there for years and years and years themselves. And they were particularly likely to be experienced displacement anxiety. And it was partly linked. And this is one of the methodological points that I, that, that, that I emphasize in the book, is that my interviews were very uh, in-depth, in and I was very keen to understand people's housing histories, their trajectories before they got onto the estate. And what I found was that many of the temporary tenants in particular, but also some of the secure tenants as well, they had histories of displacement. So they experienced recurrent displacement. So in other words, what you have then is that the the, the latest round of threatened displacement and the displacement anxiety that it created is layered on top of all these previous displacements that they experienced throughout their housing histories. So that's what I was really keen to try and understand, um, you know, to conceptually understand as well. You know, how can we think about displacement in a much more long-term process? So what about resistance then? Because you mentioned that different groups of tenants and homeowners responded differently to, to those regeneration proposals. So how did that Uh, work? What did you observe? Yeah, I mean, it's really, really interesting because I've done quite a lot of research around housing activism. And one of the, you know, one of the issues that I found on the estates that I looked at was that people did get involved to some extent to some, not everybody, by, by no means, but certainly some tenants and some homeowners could get involved in campaigns to try and resist or at least contest the demolition schemes that were coming along. But what was really, really interesting was the way that these campaigners, they weren't, they weren't people who'd been involved in housing activism before. They, they were novice housing activists. They got involved in housing activism because of the threat, the imminent threat to their homes and the homes of their neighbors. So there was, you know, it, it's kind of like one of the, shoot, it's not, it's not fortunate byproducts, but it's certainly one of the interesting, you know, the, the, the contradictory, the dialectical nature of, of, of social relations is the way that what's, what's, what state regeneration done in the form of demolition and rebuilding has done is, it's, it's, it's energized, it's prompted, all of these um, housing campaigns to resist it. And that's formed part of the broader umbrella of housing activism in a city like London anyway. There have been housing activism, you know, I've been in London for a long time. There's, housing activism has taken different forms. You've got squatting, you've got campaigns by uh, council tenants, um, you know, all kinds of campaigns. You've got campaigns then, there's currently there's London Renters Union. There have been all kinds of campaigns. But part of this kind of, part of, the, part of the network of campaigns, well, recently, in the last 20 years anyway, has been these estate-based campaigns whereby people are resisting and challenging then the implications of estate regeneration for their homes and neighbourhoods. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's not necessarily, one of the points I try and make in the book is that it's not necessarily easy for them Uh, you know, for all kinds of reasons, uh, but nevertheless, you know, it it it, it, it had even if it, you know, in some cases they've managed to stop or to halt or to radically scale back the number of homes that be demolished, but it also has got various other kind of like benefits for them as well, really. Uh, and I've you know, I've I've got to say I've been involved in various uh, London campaigns, so so I've been an active uh, member in uh, demolition called Demolition Watch London, and this was a, a an umbrella group of various um, estates who were threatened with demolition, basically. And what about party politics? Because housing activism is, of course, a very interesting topic, but you also mentioned that like the formal politics had a lot to do with this uh, regeneration process. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really, really complex thing. And in some ways, I didn't, I didn't talk about it in the book nearly as much as I should, is that you know, it's, it's, a lot of it sort of hinges around the kind of the sort of Labour Party. The Labour Party has been really key to one of the things, one of the points that I do make in the book is about the way that the Labour Party is very important in terms of building the council housing estates in the first place. That was part of their electoral pitch 
to, to Londoners, basically. Vote for us and we will provide decent, affordable housing for you and your families. Um, so Labour has been central to the building of council housing in the city. Now, one of the ironies of the last 40 years in the state regeneration programme is the way that many, well, not all, but certainly some of the councils which have been heavily involved in the demolition of estates have also been Labour councils. So, for example, then you have the, currently you have the, the Lambeth, uh, sorry, the South London Borough of Lambeth, the council there, it's Labour council. They're involved in the demolition then of six other estates. This has created tremendous, um, you know, um, contestation locally. In the case, one of the uh, one of the uh, states that I talk about in the book is uh, the Northumberland Park Estate, which is in the in Tottenham, in the Northumberland Borough of Haringey. That was a, a regeneration scheme, which was called the Haringey Development Vehicle. That then was promoted by a Labour council, and then what happened was that there was an internal um, uh, conflict within the council, and basically then a new group of councillors uh, were elected. And the old the old councillors who were supporting the HDV got removed, and the new councillors then come in with a with a different uh, different pitch. So it, it's caused sort of contestation within the Labour Party, um, but it's not you know. But nevertheless, Conservative councils have, have also promulgated um, a state demolition. So one of the one of the one of the kind of ironies in in in, in the book is is the way that um, one of the estates I look at is West Hendon and Barnet. Barnet was, was primarily a Conservative council, um, and their response to estate regeneration and demolition was actually in some ways quite similar to that of the East London Borough of Newham, which was dominated by a Labour mayor at the time. They were saying very similar sort of narratives around the way that this this process was coming out. So you, it, it's a very very complicated picture. Um, and certainly estate demolition in some Labour circles is not regarded as progressive. It's certainly regarded as, um, as, as regressive. Um, but nevertheless, some Labour councils have been involved in this process. Uh, and I guess my, my last question would be about your role in your own research process, because you mentioned a few times that this was a very rich ethnographic research, you conducted interviews, but you also went to all these events and meetings uh, regarding regeneration as a scholar, as an expert. So what was your positionality in, in, in this field? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I, I kind of, you know, I <laughs> it wasn't consistent. <laughs> Some cases, you know, I, I, I played more of a... Of a um, scholar activist role in other cases it was purely a scholar role it, it kind of varied depending on different estates depending on timing really um but certainly you know i i um methodologically i would meet people at various meetings i attended um then i would uh, you know go go to the you know meet them in the, on their estates uh, attend meetings there and then some cases then I'd formally interview them. Um, and also, you know, I've tried to, you know, feedback some of the stuff that I've, that I've done in various ways as well. Um, you know, I've spoken at numerous, um, numerous um, housing and political um, campaigns. So, for example, um, I spoke at the 2017 Labour Party conference. There was a, meet, a fringe meeting there about demolitions. And I was very much, uh, you know, uh, basically arguing that the existing uh, the, well, I, I highlighted all the kind of discontents that I talk about in the book. And I was also arguing very much because at that time there was no ballot process. This was a process which didn't need to have a ballot. So I was very much arguing politically that there had to be some sort of uh, deeper political accountability uh, for the residents of estates, which, you know, you can gain through a ballot. So, you know, yeah, I mean, I've, 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 I've you know, I've, 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 you know, I have adopted a scholar activist position, and you know, it varies depending on context, basically. But some of the some of the states, some of the uh, states that I looked at, it was you know, it's entirely just straightforward academic. I, I, I played no act, activist role at all. I'm just trying to find out what was going on there. So after this impressive, long project, what are you working on now? Um, well. I'm a bit obsessive. So <laughs> I've gone back, as I said, I've gone back to some of the estates. Um, and what I want, because one of the things that 
chapter, the last chapter of the book, the aftermath section, I talk about three estates, Woodbury Down, West End and, and Carpenters. Because and I'm talking about what's what's you know what what the kind of the, the more long term results, but the bits that's missing out of the book is that I don't really talk about the new residents who've come back into the estates, the new owners, the new owner occupiers, the new private tenants. So I've currently got a research grant in fingers crossed looking at issues of social mixing and estate regeneration. So what actually happens at estates in relationship to the social relationships between the incoming primarily middle-class people and then the existing social tenants. Um, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to also trace through um, the Carpenters Estate, which is one of the estates that I look in the book, is just they've just actually recently had a ballot on the estate, well, that last year. Uh, that's now going ahead. So one thing that I wanted to try and do is to understand um, how that process is going forward. Uh, it's going forward. Um, and I'm also trying to do work around. I've been I've done a lot of work around the Olympics, and I'm still trying to um, do work then around. You know, it's just now been the, the decennial uh, anniversary of the 2012 Olympics, and housing was one of the big claims in relationship to regeneration. That's it's going to improve the housing of East Londoners. So that's also one of the things that I'm currently working on, particularly around issues of, of people living in uh, temporary housing. Really. So what's been the long term impact of the games on their housing circumstances? This sounds very interesting and best of luck with these new projects and thank you for this interesting conversation. Thanks very much, Anna. Uh, I, uh, yeah, I enjoyed it and uh, hope it was interesting for your listeners.